Hey everyone, 2023 is now over. We are into 2024 and we are just, it's only been a couple of days, but I am a couple of days late to one of my favorite lists to make every single year and something I do yearly now and that is my top 10 favorite films of 2023. Now to be 100% honest with you, I was delaying this list as long as possible. Now I've had this list ready in terms of things I loved ordered for the whole year basically in terms of just adding them as soon as I see them. But there were so many movies this year that I just missed out on, either because they did, were not released anywhere near where I live, haven't really been released digitally, and I may have missed them the first round of theaters. Or number three, there are movies that a lot of people really liked, but for me personally, I tried getting into them and couldn't quite get into them. A couple of examples, not in any of those categories specifically, but I wasn't able to see Godzilla Minus One, which wasn't released here. A couple other films like Past Lives, I just could not find. The movie released here a couple of months ago, but since I missed it in theaters, they haven't released it digitally, so I haven't been able to see that. So there are a lot of fantastic movies, I'm sure, that I have not been able to see. And that, that's why I feel like my list, compared to all the other ones from people, feels pretty truncated and has a few more blockbusters than most people. And that's, again, because I just was not able to see a lot of the very highly praised movies that a lot of people seem to love that were released this year. And that's why it doesn't feel quite as, I feel like, comprehensive as usual. And because of that, I'm not going to be including any honorable mentions on this list, I will try to improve in 2024, and I won't be living where I am now for like almost half the year, so I don't know if that's going to help in terms of getting to see movies, or it's just going to make things worse as I go off to college. We'll see about that. But all that aside, let's get into it. My top 10 favorite films of 2023. Again, I absolutely love making this list. I don't do a worst of the years list because I feel like it's kind of pointless. I just want to give you guys recommendations in terms of these might be movies you guys haven't seen these might be movies that maybe you guys didn't love but want to hear a different perspective on, or you just want to hear my list, and that's always the people I appreciate the most realistically, if you care what I have to say about what I think are the best movies of the year. And we're here again, so let's count down the top 10 best movies of 2023, presented by Movie Morning, as always. Kicking off my top 10 is Blackberry. This is a movie I only saw like a week ago from today, and I was hearing about it for the whole year. And I remember it had such a quiet release and everybody was raving about how good it was. I finally got a chance to watch it as it released digitally. I don't think it had a theatrical release where I lived. And I loved it. I saw the trailers and I wasn't really sure of the visual style and the camera and the very grounded and kind of almost shaky cam and like very succession type style was going to be my thing. But it 100% was. There are some fantastic performances in this movie from... Glenn Howerton, who is just screaming like the entire movie, and it's very entertaining. And Jay Baruchel, who's giving by far the more collected performance. And Jay Baruchel is actually the voice of Hiccup in the How to Train Your Dragon movies, which I just rewatched, And it reminded me how much I love those movies. But he is great in this movie as well. I've never seen him in a role like this. And I wish he appeared in more like high-profile films, because I feel like he's a really great actor. Not only a voice actor, but this movie clearly shows he's a fantastic actor. And Matt Johnson, who directed this movie, is also one of the other main characters in here. He gives a great performance. What I really love about this movie is that it tells the rise and fall of the BlackBerry, the phone company, before, you know, Apple went crazy and smartphones were a big thing. And it's really a very grounded look at it. It doesn't feel like one of those Hollywoodized versions of the story. It feels very grounded. It feels real. It doesn't put too much of a focus on the characters as people. It very much takes a central look just at the company and the rise of them created by these people. It doesn't really focus on them as human beings and their inner struggles as much but their you know the the downsides to their personality and the issues they have do affect how the company goes and i feel like that's what was really powerful about this movie is even though it's not one of the more emotionally moving movies of the year 
it tells a fantastic true real life you know product film and i'm always really into those kinds of movies and there's one of the mother of those on this list but also focuses on how the people they are impacted its success but also how other people like for example what they're doing with apple impacted their downfall it's a really great story it is a sweeping story i believe it, i think it takes place if i remember correctly in three different distinct time periods of the blackberry company and i think that for those of you who are interested in maybe if you had a blackberry i'm way too young to have had one but if you're interested in the story i don't think you're going to find many other better tellings than this movie here and i think it will be remembered very fondly it is a super entertaining film and I thought it was such a great telling of the story. And that's why it comes in at number 10. And maybe if more time, again, I only saw this a week ago, it could have even moved up this list if I had seen it earlier this year. Number 9 is Anatomy of a Fall, another movie I only saw last week. And again, that might be why I'm holding off on some of these films that I've just seen. But I saw this movie in theaters, and it is another one of the most realistic films I've seen all year. It is a courtroom drama, but again, it doesn't have that Hollywoodized feel to it it very much feels like how it would actually play out this is a french film but like almost half the movie is in english so if you're not big on subtitles you at least get almost half the movie with subtitles this was an engrossing thrilling and very tense film but that's also very quiet at the same time it focuses on not a murder but a death that happens um, and it focuses the main character of the film is the wife of the character who died and the whole film is kind of trying to find out what really happened more so what were what was kind of the thought process of each of the characters surrounding him when that happened mainly focusing on again his wife and his son and it's a very again it is a very tense film it's pretty quiet at the same time but it's also a very subdued and methodical movie it takes its time this is definitely a bit of a slow burn and it's almost two and a half hours long so i can understand it's not for everybody but for me the dialogue i thought was in just absolutely just thrilling to watch again even though a lot of it you have to read the subtitles i was fully on board with it on board with this the themes were extremely heavy and by the end of the movie you realize the movie is not really about what happened but more so how it's affecting the people around the big event but also more specifically why would why was there a potential for anyone again around what happened to actually cause what happened and it's a very Again, like I said, powerful story. It's very rich in its themes, and I definitely sat on it a lot afterwards. And again, this is one of those movies I saw this year that I will not be forgetting anytime soon. And there's a recording scene in this film that's one of the pow most powerful, one of the most well-acted scenes of the entire year, and Sandra Euler gives an amazing performance as the lead character. So Anatomy of a Fall comes in at my number nine. Number eight, John Wick Chapter Four. This is the best of the John Wick movies. And I wasn't really sure if you know, this movie came out over nine months ago, whether this movie would still be on my list, like after months and months of other movies coming out, but it still is. This is the one of the best action movies of the entire year, and it probably would have been the best if not for one other major franchise having a release this year. And again, like I said, it's my favorite film of the franchise. It is, every, it is the perfect blend of everything people love about this series. The action is bigger and better than it's ever been. It has some of the greatest action scenes in any movie ever with the with the you know the stairs sequence and we had the drag the dragon's breath shotgun or whatever it was called those two are some of the most mind-blowing actions i've ever seen and then there's a raid in the tokyo continental or osaka continental excuse me that is again one of the longest action scenes i've ever seen it's also one of the most well choreographed well stylized chad stahelski has such a good grip on this franchise his style not only in terms of the action and the actual practical stunts but also just creating this world and the world of the Continental. It feels 
more like it did in the first two movies when I feel like in the third movie it kind of went off the rails with some of the lore. I think this movie brings it back very well. And I think it has such a very it has a very clear drive in the main narrative. It's extremely simple like the first movie. And I really like that this movie finally showed John Wick's exhaustion. And I think people are underplaying how important that was to this movie being as enjoyable as it was. Where he is put through the ringer in this movie. And the movie definitely starts to show that by the time we get into the third act. And the last hour of this movie is like one long, epic, just like, group of action sequences that play at one after another. And it just absolutely blew my mind in terms of how that was executed. And be as entertaining as it was for how long it is. And there's some great supporting characters in this movie, like Donnie Yen, who absolutely steals the show as Kane. And there's some other really fun performances, like Bill Skarsgård is the main villain, the the um the Marquis. He is so much fun. Again, like I said, the world building and finally leading into what I think is the best climax and ending you can have to this franchise if you want to end it right and not just on a random film. They really should stick with this at the ending, as the ending, if you ask me. And I don't really think there should be another one. This having closed out his four-film arc and this journey of John Wick very, very well. And I think that what he's been, what John Wick has been pursuing over the four films does culminate here. And it was such a satisfying, explosive action film. Like I said, one of the best of the entire year. And it comes in at number eight. Number seven is Air. This is yet another fantastic directorial effort from Ben Affleck, who's one of the best directors working today. And he proves that again with air and it has one of the sharpest scripts of the entire year and it might be one of the funniest and wittiest films i saw this year and i just haven't like had a chance to rewatch this but i've been wanting to rewatch it for a couple of months now it was just wildly entertaining the humor was so funny matt damon is great in this movie as sonny vaquero he was never going to get any awards love for this movie but i just personally really loved the way he played the main character and he has a monologue towards the end of this movie that is one of the best my favorite scenes of the entire year probably top five it could even crack my top three and let me know if that's a list you'd be interested in seeing although kind of personally after this list we're ready to move forward into 2024 but move over that i really like the mix between the very again legendary sequences involving michael jordan but also the very realistic look at the business that was going around that time and i think this movie has a really great understanding of how you know those companies actually went and how people talked and it just felt real in that regard and i really like the way ben affleck brought in kind of the 80s flair into the musical choices, which I absolutely loved, but also in the sets and the practical locations that they shot on. And I think it, I really like that it doesn't rely on the audience's knowledge of MJ's history. And it instead just focuses about the shoe and how it came about and how revolutionary it was in terms of getting, you know, players actually having pay that went along with their shoes. And I really love the way they did that. And I actually really like this movie managed to make Nike and Sonny Vaccaro an underdog story, and I just never thought you could do that with a company as big as Nike, who's done some very shady things, but they're also, again, just being as big as they are. I was really surprised this movie was able to do that and make me root for the characters in this film, and I feel like that's maybe, mainly the most, maybe the most impressive thing about it. There's some other great performances in here, like Jason Bateman. Not enough people talking about how funny he is in here, but like I said, the, that underdog story, I love how it takes the sports movie formula then puts it into a film about an athlete's shoes, and it still works. And in this movie, it absolutely does. And by the end of the movie, it is such a satisfying, very fulfilling, yet such a simple film. And again, this movie reminds me of a very different era of movies. And it's a type of movie that I wish we kind of got to see more often. It has this retro kind of crowd-pleasing feel that has always worked very well for me. And it absolutely did with Air. 
Coming in at number six is Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, I was excited to see this movie just because of being Martin Scorsese and liking a lot of the cast members in here. But I wasn't really sure if it was fully going to be up my alley. And when I finally saw it about like a month and a half ago in theaters, this movie, again, was one of the most gripping films of the entire year. It's three and a half hours long, but it never felt like something where I was just kind of casually, passively watching it. This was an engrossing three and a half hour just epic of a movie that has so much in it, so many things being explored, so many characters, so many different phases of life of these characters being explored, and yet such as have this such a satisfying crime thriller, three and a half hour kind of epic feel to it, like I've already said like five times talking about this movie, but it really is epic, and it's kind of a bio, biopic. And Martin Scorsese, of course, one of the most legendary directors to ever grace the medium and make movies for us. And this movie, I don't think, will be hailed as one of his best in the long run, but I will always personally see it as one of his best. Because I feel like, again, I'm so, I was so impressed by how into the film I was for how long the film was. Again, I think it does take about an hour to really get you in until really like the murders, murders start to happen and kind of the unraveling of the mystery and corruption within this town in Oklahoma and what was going on and the Osage people. It takes a bit to really have its main plot going, but before then, the performances, I feel like, are so good, especially with Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, who work so well together, and they just carry the film on their shoulders. Leo, even, even though not many people are talking about him because he's always great in movies, I feel like this is actually one of his best performances of all time because he's able to show so much emotion. He's a bit of a bumbling buffoon, but I feel you can kind of always tell the character does have a grip of what is going on, but it's kind of choosing to not really... I guess you could say, put much weight to it. And I think it was such a powerful performance that he was able to convey that. Lily Gladstone, definitely the breakout star of this film. I think she's going to get tons of other work after being in this film. And again, there's tons of great supporting characters like Jesse Clements has a really small but fun role. Or not fun, but good role. Robert De Niro has a role, and he's, he's also pretty good in there. Not one of his best performances, though. He's not in that much of the movie. But this, again, like I said, it's three and a half hours long. There's a lot that happens in this movie. And yet, I was still stuck to my seat and I was just fully into this film for the entire runtime. It has some of the most haunting, disturbing scenes of the year. But it's also, you know, it also has some moments that are a little lighter and I feel like they found the balance really well. The tone of this movie is a tone that I wish a lot more movies would capture. I said, while it is dark, it is kind of miserable to watch at times. It's not always just so it's just too dark for its own good. I feel like it's able to be completely enriching the entire time. And I loved Killers of the Flower Moon. Kicking off my top five is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. If you know anything about me, you know this one had to make the list because I love Tom Cruise and I love these movies and this is yet another knockout blockbuster from this franchise and Tom Cruise's team. He has working with him over there. It is absolutely worthy of the Mission Impossible title and although it's probably the worst Mission Impossible movie since Mission Impossible 3, it's still one of the best movies of the year because these movies really are that good. Again, one of the greatest action films ever ever made. It combines some of the best things about this franchise, the darker and more serious stakes of the Macquarie films and the plot with kind of the more ghost protocol humor. And I really liked that balance. There's some really funny sequences in this movie. And the airport sequence, for example, it's a very low-key scene for the re- compared to the rest of the movie, but it has some really funny moments. Haley Atwell is a fantastic addition into this franchise. Didn't love what they did with some of the characters, like Rebecca Ferguson, and I don't really know if I want to talk about spoilers in here. But other than that, there isn't really much to complain about. Sure, the AI stuff wasn't handled best, but that's really not what this franchise is about. It's about the action. It's about the characters. It's about the group dynamic, 
and we have been with the IMF team that we've been following for so long. And all that is still hold true. Again, the action when it comes to the train sequence, the third act, one of them, my favorite third act of the whole year. And again, so realistic. If it was actually shot like that and you really 100% feel that. And I really like that the story of this movie and the way it's put together does feel a little more memorable than some of the other plots we've had in this franchise. And I think this movie dives a little deeper into what it actually means to be an IMF agent and how that goes about. And it explored a bit more of Ethan Hunt's backstory than I was expecting. And I actually liked the way they did that. And they tied that to the main villain. And the stakes definitely feel epic. They have a personal feel to it. And I like how they did that. And all that, I mean, this is a two hour and 45 minute movie or whatever it was. And this movie flies by. It does not feel that long. It never drags. By the time you, by the time the movie ends, and I've seen this movie like two or three times, you're really surprised it ends. And you're kind of like, that really, that was two and a half hours? And it really is. I love seeing Henry Zerny back. Did not, I, I actually forgot he was in this movie when I watched it. But I, lo- I love seeing him back at, as Kittredge. And I hope we see more of him in part two. Although apparently it's no longer part two because they're going to retitle movie eight, which is going to be really weird when you have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part one and then have another title, which is supposed to be Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part two for the eighth film. But, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, I guess. And once again, the editing fantastic again for the runtime lauren balf score is pulse pounding as always as he delivers with these films mission impossible dead reckoning part one although not my favorite mission impossible movie not even one of my top three favorite mission impossible movies compared to everything else that's come out this year it is one of the best films of the year one of the most entertaining experiences i had in imax when it came out number four for me is one of the biggest surprises of the entire year and that is the holdovers i get i saw this movie a couple of weeks back i saw it on digital and i loved this movie i thought this film was such a delight such a charming film a movie that had such a heart to it that i really wasn't expecting this is a movie that follows a teacher who has to you know watch over kids as they say over winter break at school because they don't have a home to go back to or their parents are away and they can't go home and then it really turns into this movie that really just follows this one student and as well as one of his teachers who's super cranky he's kind of in many ways kind of your stereotypical you know, college or high school professor, but then you really realize why he is that way and who he actually is underneath. And this movie, it also has a really great supporting performance from Divine Joy Randolph, who's sure to get an Academy Award nomination, and she gives a fantastic performance. Her character's journey is really powerful. But the story of the two main characters kind of connecting over the course of this pseudo-road trip movie that's also very contained. Again, it takes place, I believe, in the 1970s, and it has this very classic aesthetic to it. It not only feels like it was... It's in that era, but also feels like it was made in that era, and I think that's a really tricky thing that a lot of people, a lot of movies fail to achieve. Although they feel like they're in that era, they still feel like a modern-made film. This movie not only feels like it was made like 40, 50 years ago, it, it is actually set in that era, and I think that's really impressive. It's super heartfelt, and it's definitely a crowd-pleasing kind of film. It's definitely my kind of Oscar bait. I don't think this movie's going to win any awards or anything, but it's the kind of Best Picture nominee that I personally gravitate towards. And it will put a smile on your face by the end. It might even get a tear out of you. But overall, it's just a very, it's a really good story about two characters who are pretty closed off. And they try to keep, and they pretty much distance their emotions from almost everyone else because of their own issues. And how similar they actually are. That's kind of revealed throughout the movie. And I found myself really wrapped up in the story. And the emotions definitely swelling in multiple moments. There's a lot of really relatable moments in here. And a lot of absolutely heartbreaking scenes that I wasn't expecting. And this movie is sure to be, in my opinion, one of the next Christmas classics. And I think this is a movie that a lot of people are going to be watching in the holidays, every single during the holidays, every single year. 
because again, it has the vibe of a Christmas film. Although apparently the director, Alexander Payne, doesn't really like that people are considering it that. But to me, he made a movie that has all the trademarks of the best Christmas movies. And The Holdovers is my number four favorite movie of the year. And although, again, it's two hours and something minutes long, it is, it's a movie that really made me feel a lot. And that's why it is as high as it is. And that's why all the movies in the next couple of spots are as high as they are. Kicking off my top three is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, James Gunn's conclusion to his Guardians trilogy. It was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had at a movie theater, but also one of the most satisfying ones that I can remember. James Gunn closed out his three-film arc with these Guardians, these characters I've loved so much for 10 years now, and it meant so much to me in a way that felt right. He didn't do it the easy way. He didn't have to kill any of these characters, but instead he found the right ending because he's a lot smarter than me and he was able to find a way to close out all these characters' journeys in unorthodox ways, but in ways that if you watch this trilogy together, it feels like the right way. And this final adventure together with these, with, with these band of misfits was entertaining, it was funny, it was emotional. And, but again, it, was, it just made me feel such a wide spectrum of emotions. And every one of the characters has their arc, whether it's a big one or it's a small one. Peter Quill and Chris, pa- Chris Pratt, I love the arc that he goes on and where they leave him going back to visit his grandfather back on Earth. And Rocket, he is the MVP of this film and his backstory, how tragic it is, not, it isn't done for the sake of showing animal cruelty. Like I feel like some people have kind of made it out to me. It's done to show why Rocket has been the way it is. And it's really an exploration into broken people. And that's why it is such it's a movie that resonates with, on such a deep level, such a deeper level than most other comic book movies and with so many people. And that's what people latch onto in these movies. It's not the humor, as fantastic as it is. It's not the space opera. It's the characters. And it's these broken people that have come together and have found family in each other. That's what is so powerful about these Guardians films. And not only that, they're really fun comic book movies and they're super entertaining. They're action-packed. And James Gunn is always fantastic at finding that balance. And it's the heart of his movies that people are drawn towards. And once again, this movie does not miss at all in any of those. And the stakes still feel supremely high. And when it comes to visuals, James Gunn is really one of the only directors who's still able to really... And now I guess he's over at DC, so he can't do this anymore. But he was really one of the only directors who was able to have his artistic voice shine through beyond the Marvel machine, who's kind of, who kind of have, have all produced these movies the same way. The visual effects and CGI are easily the best we've had in the MCU in years and again, that, that really is not a high bar, but I truly mean it when I say that. I think this film has some of the best visual effects and design work of the entire year, and the hair and makeup and all that. On all technical levels, this movie is really strong. But again, it's the emotion, it's the heart of the story, it's Rocket's journey. And even the main villain, the High Evolutionary, was such an entertaining presence, and he was just definitely a bit of a shrieky villain, definitely shouted way too much. But sometimes I just want a villain who I can hate, and that, that can definitely benefit your movie, and in this case, it definitely does. So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, one of my favorite movies of the entire year. It doesn't matter that it's a comic book movie. It doesn't matter if these movies aren't making as much money as they do as they did a couple of years ago. Guardians 3 proves this genre has more to offer, and it is why I think James Gunn will do such a fantastic job as Guardian of the DC Universe in the next 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 20 years, however long he's going to be the co-CEO there. I can't wait to see what he does in the future in this genre. And he is right now, I think, the king of this genre. My runner-up is Oppenheimer. It is yet another Christopher Nolan 
masterpiece. Now, I while I, I was hyped to see this movie, I wasn't expecting this to be as good as it was. I do think it is Nolan's best movie since Inception, and I think it proves to me definitively that he is still the top director of work today, even if I didn't love Dunkirk, and I didn't love Interstellar, and I didn't love Tenet as much as I wanted to. This movie feels like the return to form that he needed. It is a haunting, brisk, three-hour talkie, and it's an equally captivating story as it is scary. Killian Murphy delivers his career best performance as a physicist who is so well developed as a character through this film over such a long period of time. And alongside that, there are multiple supporting cast performances that are phenomenal, like Robert Downey Jr., who should be winning Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and he finally gets to flex all of his amazing acting muscles again. And Emily Blunt, who gives a good performance as well. I don't know if she's quite awards-worthy or anything, like a lot of people have made her out to be. I do think she's great. Jason Clark gives a really underrated performance. He, he's one of the best. He has one of the best scenes of the whole movie that is so intense. And it kind of parallels one of the scenes with Louis Straws with Robert Downey Jr. Alden Ehrenreich is another standout. Not enough people are mentioning. I'm mentioning a lot of the more underseen performances because I feel like it they're being overshadowed for some of the bigger performances in here. And even like Rami Malek, he only has one scene, but he makes such an impact with one of the most powerful and important scenes of the entire film. And again, with so many A-list actors, as much as you notice them when they come on screen, it never pulls you out of the experience. Christopher Nolan, with his kind of semi-black and white, semi-colored movies, able to wrap you up so hard into this big bonanza that is this epic experience you've had if you watch this in IMAX. And it really is more of a character study of J. Robert Oppenheimer than it even is about the story of the atomic bomb. And... I think this is Nolan's most successful film on an emotional level because of that. And that all while being absolutely thought-provoking throughout. The cinematography is, of course, outstanding. Ludwig Göransson, oh my god, the ending of this film, can you hear the music? One of the greatest scenes in any film ever and possibly the strongest and most haunting and powerful ending of the year that leaves you with so much to think about and so much to fear. And when a movie can get that out of you, it's doing a damn good job at what it's trying to do. And... All with all that, I think it's his most effective story told with his kind of subjective versus objective scenes and also jumping around different time periods. This movie, I think, does it the best and cleanest out of all his movies, even if I feel like a movie like Batman Begins is a movie I'm going to rewatch more. I think this movie tackles all that really well, and it does not shy away from the fact that this movie had events that literally reshaped the course of human history, and it's very significant. So Oppenheimer, for me, comes in at number two. And it would have been number one almost any other year, other than the last couple of years. We've had some true bangers in terms of plot blockbusters the past couple of years. But coming into my number one, no surprise here if you know who I am, watched or I guess listened to any of my stuff. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse comes in at number one. It is my favorite movie of the entire year. It's one of my favorite movies of the past couple of years. And this, to me, is one of the greatest experiences I've ever had at a movie theater. I saw this movie like four times in theaters and almost within like a two-week span this movie left me literally shaken by the time it ended. Like, this, this movie proved to me that not only does this genre have more to offer, the medium of animation, I feel like this movie showed, is being greatly underappreciated. And this movie really is, shows how far you can take it. And I'm almost wondering, can you even go further than what this movie had? On an animation standpoint, this movie is revolutionary. It's going to change the medium and the way it's used in Hollywood. I truly believe that. It has some of the most amazing visuals I've ever seen. But again, the heart of this movie is still the story of Miles Morales and his family. It's about a kid who's learning to take control of his own life, but also 
really learn to care, to really value the people around him, whether that's Gwen, Peter B. Parker, more importantly, his parents. And it's such a great father-son, mother-son story hidden into all the amazing action, bombastic sequences. And the relationships in this movie and the dialogue, Lord and Miller never miss on the writing front. And whether that's between Miles and Gwen, Miles again and his parents, all the other spider people, it's such a powerful story as well that really does deconstruct the Spider-Verse as an idea and even canon in terms of comic books and all that as an idea. And it really does tackle the idea of does Spider-Man have to suffer to be an interesting character? And I think that's something that's going to be answered very definitively in the third movie, but it's set up here so well. It is a part one, and I know that's why a lot of people would, don't want to place it as high as it is, but I've been watching a lot of lists from people who made very similar stuff to me, and I'm kind of surprised how basically not a single people, a person, other person I've watched has this movie at number one, when I promise you if this movie came out last week with all the other movies we've had, everybody would have this movie at number one, and I feel like that's kind of the issue with doing end-of-year lists, but that's a pet peeve of mine that we'll talk about another time. But this movie, to me, gave me an experience unlike anything I've ever had at a movie theater, unlike anything I've had with a comic book movie. And as a big Spider-Man fan, like I am, as big of a one as I am, I feel like I'm in a place where I can really tell you when there is something. A Spider-Man story I've never seen across any medium. And I feel like it takes advantage of the multiverse better than any other film I've ever seen, along with the first movie. And even with how good this movie is, I can still say I almost slightly prefer this the first movie. When this movie goes darker, it has more challenging ideas in every way. Like I said, it really much challenges the concept of a multiverse and of kind of how we associate our characters with such a rich, but also canon, and we're so dedicated to it. Is that, can that always hold true? Do we need to break away from it sometimes? Such interesting questions that this movie ex- explores, and I think we'll get into it more. But again, I have, I've almost forgotten to talk about all the amazing characters in this movie, like Spider-Man India, Spider-Man 2099. Um, Spider-Punk, who I absolutely loved, and The Spot, voiced by Jason Schwartzman. He looks to be one of the greatest villains in any comic book movie ever, but I think, again, the third one being as good as this movie, or close to that, at least, is going to cement that for me, but I loved him in this movie. Like I said, it's dark in the first movie, and on such a such a, a twist that I did see coming, because I did notice the small detail they had, where they showed the Earth that he was going to, but it was so well done, and it, I just loved the way the reveal was done. This film is one of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. It has such a fantastic score, I almost forgot to mention. Daniel Pemberton, in my opinion, delivers the best score of the entire year. Again, maybe with the exception of Oppenheimer. But, you know, I feel like these two movies, Oppenheimer and Spider-Verse, are the two movies that I will leave 2023 thinking about how they are going to impact movies moving forward the most. I absolutely love Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It is a damn near perfect movie to me. It would score all my highest ratings in, like, any type of grading scale you would want me to do. And I absolutely cannot wait to get the third film. Could be five years from now as far as I know, and I would still be there opening day. Absolutely pumped. Because Lord and Miller and all the directors and we who've done such a fantastic job have delivered a sequel that pretty much lives up to the first film, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. So Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse comes in at number one. It is my favorite movie of 2023. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, let me know what your favorite movie of 2023 is in the Q&A section on Spotify and come back in pretty much like two days, hopefully, where I will be able to get out my top 10 most anticipated movies of 2024, which is actually my favorite thing to do every single year. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you all next time. Bye-bye.